Jilly Windsor, 1935. I was born March the 13th in Thurley, a North Bedfordshire village. My father was a master thatcher and one of a family of 11 and mother was an only child whose parents kept the village shop, had a carrier's business, horses and carriage rather than people into town, ran people into town to shop or catch a train and worked a small holding. There were pastures for the horses and cows, a cow shed and a granary to store the corn. It was here that I spent many of my early years. One morning my mother asked me to wash up and I refused. As a punishment she sent me to the cow shed to help grandfather. I loved it there, sweeping away the excrement and gathering it into a, with a shovel onto the manure heap. Next I fed cows, cow cakes to the animals and scooped cream from the pails full of milk ready to make butter. I also found time to help grandfather and play school and play schools using boxes for seats, desks and shops in the barns, going for walks and picking wild flowers, making pretend smoking pipes out of acorns and gathering conkers or helping my father on his allotment. My early years were blissful, but of course life is, isn't always like that. The Second World War brought an aerodrome to the village and with it chewing gum we would, chewing gum we would yell, Got any gum chum? As we ran behind the lorries full of American airmen, our home was on the flight path. I well remember my older sister and myself running into, gar into the garden to watch the airplanes come home from their raids. They were so low we could often see the pilots and always notice whether the propellers were working or not. Some limped home as their engines made a sputtering sound. During the night we could hear the sound of engines coming down the chimney. Mum, we shouted, Jerry's about. No, she would shout back, it's one of ours. Another memory that sticks in my head is one early morning when I was waiting for the school bus. My mother stood on the shop doorstep and called out, You've failed your 11 plus. It felt like someone had hit me at my head with a hammer. My older sister already attended the Dame Alice Harper Grammar School. I was desperate to join her. Instead, my grandparents paid for me to go to a private school. I was thr thrilled to win prizes there for good work, but I failed in my second chance to get into the grammar school when I was 13. I was dispatched to Keyso Secondary School. My dreams of being a school teacher shuttered. Soon afterwards, the headmaster told me I should have passed that exam. I was very happy at Keyso School. Whilst there, the education officer from County Hall visited he sat next to me for lunch. I told him about my ambition and he suggested I take the nursery nurse training course instead. Age 15, I began working in the children's nursery school. To get there at 9am, I had to cycle eight miles. The school had a strict routine which included a dose of cod liver oil and road hip syrup mid-morning. I had to carry it on a large tray approximately 48 inches by 20, 20 inches. On one occasion I dropped it. Fearing a massive telling off, I was surprised to hear the headmistress say with a smile, those who handle it most, drop it the most. The next drama was when I arrived and promptly fainted. Too much cycling, you will have to go to a residential home, said the, said the headmistress. 
and so it was that I arrived at a prefabricated building in Luton. It looked uninviting, but inside was bright and the children were playing happily. Matron dressed in her navy blue uniform and sister in red and white stripes welcomed me. The nursery nurses wore green and white stripes and cook was a cheerful lady in white. I felt scared and shivered in my bed that night, but I soon realised, despite the sadness of the children being away from their families, it was an amazingly happy place to work. Whilst there, the government asked that measures should be taken to de-institutionalise children who were permanently in care. All staff were asked to take a child home on their day off. I chose two and a half year old. He wrapped his arms tightly around my neck most of the journey home. My mother pulled out the bottom drawer of her walnut wardrobe to make it into a cot and my brothers found toys for him to play with. In time he began to cry for long periods when I took him back to the children's home and put him into his cot. You'll have to keep him, I told my mother. She agreed to look into this idea and he became part of the family living in the old vicarage which had 14 rooms and was bought with 30 acres following the sale of the house and shop. It wasn't long before he began to call them mum and dad but my mother always told him he had another mother. She was determined to track her down. This resulted in a monthly meeting with her but for me it felt that he really belonged to me. A few years later mother noticed Philip was constantly wanting a drink and becoming listless and getting thinner. The doctor sent him to hospital and a diagnosis of diabetes was made. He was put on large doses of insulin and the danger list. After a couple of wretched weeks he began to improve and six weeks later he was discharged but falling into a coma was a common event in his life. I was relieved when I passed the nursery nurse examination. Matron suggested uh, that I would make a good nurse and should apply to Adam Books Hospital Cambridge for training. Of course, without a grammar school education, I had to take an intelligence test. Fortunately, I was accepted. There followed three months in the preliminary training school, which consisted of studies and learning practical tasks. Training was hard at times, gruesome. Long hours, two or three of them in the sluice room, emptying huge jars of urine, 24-hour specimens which stank, and cleaning them together with bedpans and sputum mugs, the girl that shared three months of shared the girl that shared three months of that remains a great friend, possibly a consequence of sticking together in adversity. On day duty, the first job in the morning was making beds, often with very old patients in the bed. Time allowed was two minutes, and if the completed task was unsatisfactory, sister or staff nurse would pull it to pieces, saying. Make it properly this time. In fact, all work undertaken had to be of the highest standard. For the next three years, I progressed steadily from bedpans to dressing wounds, monitoring intravenous strips and giving out the medicines and other more senior tasks. Several patients remain in my memory. Mrs M, thin and gaunt with prominent eyes, who suffered with tapeworm. Mr N, who had a metal tube in his neck, was equally thin and a handsome young man who was in an iron lung. I can still hear the rhythmatic rhythm of the whoosh of the machine. Training was hard, but at the end of my general nursing training, I went to Belfast to do my midwifery training at the Royal Victoria Midwifery Hospital, a Protestant hospital and one of the earliest to have a premature baby unit. 
The smallest baby at the time weighed a little over two pounds. He felt so tiny and fragile to handle. On the wards, mothers were nursed in bed for ten days. Little did we know that this put them at risk of thrombosis. On the streets, fires sometimes burned. The Protestants and Catholics clashed. On the hospital lawns, we sometimes sat in the sunshine listening to Elvis Presley singing, All Shook Up, and the Platter singing, I'm the Great Pretender. I loved Ireland and its people, but my happiness was shattered as I left the large hall where I sat my final examination to become a state registered midwife. One of the war sisters stopped me and told me to report to Matron. Grimface, she told me that my little brother had died and I must return home. She insisted I travel by sea and take all my belongings with me. You must be with your family, she said. I wept all the way from Belfast to Bedford and felt drained and exhausted. My family were bereft too. Subsequently, I worked at St. Barthew's Hospital as a staff nurse before moving to America with two friends to work in the Montefiore Hospital in Pennsylvania. I was staff nurse on the charity ward. Mr. P, who was black, asked me whether my blood, if I cut myself, would be the same colour as his. I assured him that it would be, and a broad smile spread across his face. In America, I earned I earned much much more money than at home. I spent quite a bit of visiting various states. First was New Jersey, where an uncle who left England with his possessions wrapped in a neckerchief worked for Mr. Cho, a former ambassador to England. He made me very welcome, took me out for delicious meals, and showed me his incredible collection of silver most of which was out of sight in the sideboard. Another trip was to see the cherry tree in Blossom in Washington, D.C. The highlight there was waiting in a taxi at a roundabout. It would be worth the wait, the taxi driver drawled, and he was right. Shortly after, Harold Macmillan and President Kennedy drove slowly past. One year later, I made a 24-hour bus trip, which took me through some beautiful countryside, on my way to Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Texas. I sat at the back of the bus and many hours later a man asked me to move to the front. I'm quite happy where I am, thank you, I answered politely, although I felt irritated. After repeated requests at intervals, he inquired whether I was a freedom writer. I had no idea what a freedom rider was. He explained black people sat at the back of the bus and whites at the front and asked, do you want to start a riot? It was my introduction to segregation. Even the ward I worked on at the University Hospital in Galveston was for black people. Another unusual happening in Galveston was when Hurricane Carla swept through the little island in the Mexican Gulf. The biggest evacuation since World War II took place by walking over a three-mile bridge which joined in to the mainland. The hurricane snapped palm trees in half, turned cars upside down, and the roaring waves were massive. Water rose up the walls of the hospital. No one was allowed out for four days. Helicopters circling the building were a welcome sight. Help had arrived. Two months later, I returned to New York, embarked on the Queen Elizabeth, and crossed the Atlantic to come home for Christmas with my family the first time since I left to work in the children's home. 
I continued to live at home at the old mill house. At Christmas I became sister on a ward at Bedford General Hospital. I like to think it was a happy ward for patients and staff, and generally I believe it was. In spite of my insistence that high standards were a must, one student nurse from a far-off land dared to challenge me on this. I asked her to mop up some water on the floor near a patient locker. It will evaporate, was her response. Very firmly, I replied. Not in this country, I'm afraid, nurse. Please do as you are told. Whilst at the hospital, I became friends with one of the other younger sisters. She had a steady boyfriend and asked me if I would be interested in going out with one of his friends. With the help of a stiff whisky, beforehand I went along. The blind date was a tall, dark, handsome man with his feet firmly on the ground, and we got on well. The happy time that followed was once again challenged when six months later my mother was diagnosed with cancer. I'll give her six months to consult and said as he left. It was a hammer blow and the whole family was shattered when she died as predicted. I did my best to keep the household running and my sister helped on Saturdays. I resigned from my post of sister to marry my blind date 12 months later. Roland and I were married in October 1964 with a reception in a marquee on the hill Mill Paddock. An aunt organised the catering and the following honeymoon in Spain. We moved into a one-up and one-down cottage in Thurley. The lavatory, an earth closet, was a wooden place which leant against a tree at the end of the garden. Our first son was brought home from hospital to this little home. Meanwhile, Roland renovated the cottage which I bought earlier from my imagined spinsterhood. Before I showed it to him, I warned that it was a bit of a hovel. After viewing it, he remarked, Quite novel. Novel hovel sounds okay. That stuck, and 50 years later, the same name remains. So too do the features, rafters, beams, inglenook, fireplace. We settled happily into novel hovel. I was pregnant at the second time with my second son, one night, we, one night we were woken by a loud knock. It was my eldest brother. Philip is missing. He went to the doctors but didn't arrive, he said. Dad says you can come over. The police are searching for him. We made our way to the old mill. It was a long night and together with my younger sister-in-law, we spent much of the time the following day walking around trying to find him. I thought of the ward sister who told me, if you are a trained nurse, you can deal with anything. An off-duty policeman found him in a car upside down in the river. He had crushed through, crushed through the hedge. In our grief, we dealt with constant telephone calls from local television and radio station. I felt that my tears would never dry, that I couldn't cope, but I had to. It was then that I decided never to waste another moment of my life. It was some comfort that the inquest concluded that he had a hypoglymic episode which caused the accident rather than bad driving. In the next years I stayed at home trying to be a good mother. I took the boys for daily walks, sharing my love of the countryside with them. I organised events such as dances in the barn to raise money for charity and the church, parts of which had become derelict. Played the organ, sometimes made refreshments for the weekly, whist drives and generally joined in village activities. Occasionally I did private nursing, mostly for people living in stately homes or mini stately homes. One particular lady had a comp- companion 
who prepared a meal for me at night. We chatted sometimes and I mentioned a solid silver tray in the bathroom with oils and cream spilled on it. A crying shame and a waste of a beautiful thing, I said. That next morning the companion gave me a wrapped parcel to open when I got home. It was the silver tray. It was hers and with no living relative she asked me to treasure it for her forever. Private nursing was special because there was plenty of time to attend to the patient's needs, to listen to their words, and often they trusted me with their cigarettes. A great privilege. However, I felt I could do more and decided to train to become a health visitor. When I applied for training, I was asked at the interview what I could say to convince the panel that I could cope with an academic course for a year, knowing that I failed the 11th and had limited education. I read the telegraph from beginning to end daily, I said. On the basis of that, we will accept you if you pass our intelligence test and write a satisfactory essay. I'll write something they are unlikely to know anything about, I thought to myself, and wrote about a mushroom. Two hours later, the chairman of the panel lifted my essay high and said one word, excellent. The course was intense and for me very testing at times, but I survived. I only decided never to let the failed Olympus haunt me again and I went on to gain a BA through the Open University. Health visiting was a special 10 years. I was back among mothers, babies and children again and the elderly. The thing that surprised me was the number of people who said Thank you for listening to me. It always made me think of a nursing officer who used to say, I've listened and I've heard what you said. It made me realise that proper listening is probably an art or a gift. I was granted half a day release to attend a foundation counselling course, which I found very helpful in my work. The last four years of my career... I moved into management at the time of the reorganisation of the NHS. It was a challenging period, but some things did make sense, especially where money was obviously being wasted without realising it. However, it was sad that many older nurses who had devoted their life to nursing had to reapply for their posts, but didn't get them. It was a devastating way to end their careers. At the time, I was 59 years old and realised the same fate would probably come my way. I decided to end a career I loved myself and had a great farewell for both staff and management. I can truly say there were only two days in my 27 years with the NHS that I would have preferred to stay home rather than face the problems that awaited me. I called on my 94-year-old mother Father and Edna, my stepmother, on my way home. Father was quite frail, by, but na- frail now, but I was taken by surprise when she said, Congratulations on your retirement, dear. You can take your father home with you now. The case was hastily packed and he came with me. Fortunately, father and I always understood each other and shared many interests. Antiques, music, he could play many instruments by ear. Boo, bugle mouth organ, squeeze box, and he had a wonderful singing voice. Every day whilst he was with us, I played the piano and he sang. One day I joined in. You're flat, he said. Six weeks later he died. 
Two years afterwards, Adna came to live in the cottage next door and we cared for her until she died. After ten years, we got on well. A new phase in my life began, although caring for my acre garden was a constant and helpful transition. It was a tranquil place where each season brought its wonders. Hundreds, maybe thousands of snowdrops, cherry blossom, huge peonies and in autumn yellow maple leaves covered the lawn. I returned to rush making I returned to rush making which I learnt when I was at home with the children and supplied Harrods and Hills in London. Flower arranging was another hobby, and I enjoyed shutting myself in the church for a week to decorate for weddings. Sometimes I organised flower festivals to raise money for the church and other causes. Although caring for my acre garden was a constant constant and it helped the tra- it did help the transition it was a trans- tranquil place where each season brought its wonders perhaps the most sensible thing i did was to return to adambrook to join the adambrook's hospital league of nurses and later become honorary president it was a demanding time but i enjoyed the challenge and we had great support from dr mary archer who was board chairman at that time Sadly, there was no one willing to take over at the end of my term and 543 members worldwide voted that it should have a dignified end. A big part of my life in retirement was to travel. Roland and I spent time with our sons in Thailand. One worked in Malaysia and one in China and they joined us. This was before the explosion of tourists. I remember seeing people toiling in the fields which had with handheld ploughs drawn by bullocks. In Bangkok, little children begged us to buy their wares, mostly cheap washes, and an old man who appeared to be made of skin and bone dragged himself along the pavement to catch me and ask for money. We visited Papong, the area famous for its nightlife, girls in the windows of clubs gyrating provocatively and dancing around poles. Transvestites heavily powdered and painted, cavorting with one another. From Thailand, a light aircraft flew us to Koh Samu. We stayed in chalets on the seafront at that time. Apart from sheds at a pound a night for backpackers, our oldest son financed this for us. It was luxurious with the odd restaurant on the sea, on the seafront, eating with the sound of the sea lapping on the sand, and constant sunshine was very special. We hired motorcycles, stop, stopping at one tiny village, walking up the narrow, unmade roads. Fish was drying on the wire mesh outside wooden buildings. Older women were mixing ingredients in earthenware pots, and young girls with silk dark hair and sparkling white teeth smiled at us and watched. Two men with bristling muscles appeared from nowhere, carrying high, biting cocks with metal spurs attached to their legs. Let's get out of here, Roland said, as he turned and, and quickened his pace. We also visited Malaysia and seeing other family members and stayed in their apartment in Kuala Lumpur. They introduced us, introduced us to Chinese food, Chinese food, cooked and eaten at table on the pavements. Delicious. We became used to the odd cockroach, mouse, or very occasionally a rat creeping past our feet. We used their holiday home in Malacca, also, which opened onto the sea. On one occasion, the men went to play golf and I was alone in the garden when suddenly half a dozen lizards, about two feet long, appeared close to me. 
I was scared, but they soon left. <coughs> Next two boys came and quickly shinned up the tree, picked coconuts and threw them to the ground. I shouted, come down, that's naughty, but they continued until they're all down. But that was the end. Some time passed before an older child be stood beside me. I smiled at him and suddenly he was behind me and with a flash his hand slid over my shoulder and grabbed my bosom. I jumped up and marched him out of the garden. I welcomed the men back with open arms. My sons felt the boy was a young man. A few days were spent in another of their properties in Malacca. The house itself was fascinating. The rooms followed straight through from the front to the back. In the middle of one room it was open to the sky with a marble trough. In very hot weather you could sit there and enjoy the rain. The house was stuck but full of priceless baba furniture. In addition there was a visit to a fishing village. The longboats looked precarious with the fishermen standing up, casting their lines and wearing a straw type hat with an enormous brim. Over time I collected many hats and baskets made from natural fibrous. My old nursing friend from the sluice days rang me one day. Fancy a trip to Pakistan, she asked. My daughter is going there for a year to work. We can have the house to ourselves most of the time there. Of course I fancied a trip there. We were upgraded to business class on the flight to Islamabad, where we changed to a small propeller plane to Lahore, in which we could see the pilots every moment. At one point over the mountain, it suddenly dropped from the sky. Everyone screamed. Atmospheric pressure, the pilot announced. I looked out of the airport window and noticed a crowd of men dressed smartly in trousers and tabards with brown fat, flat hats plus a rolled brim. Not a woman in sight. I knew at that moment we were in for something different. The house in Lahore was colonial style, with a central space large enough to hold a small ball. We had a guard twenty four hours a day. The nights were cold and he had a small the nights were cold and he had a small primer stove to warm his hands and cook and cook his few vegetables. A couple of streets away was a small shopping area. Milk, vegetables, eggs and laundry. Shopping then one morning with our houseguard, four houseguard, four men passed carrying a bed with a small grubby looking sheet crumpled in the middle. I nudged my friend and said, furniture removers? No, he said, dead baby on the way to be buried. The next day we explored the old walled city of Lahore. There were many small partitioned areas with open fronts selling pots and pans, huge balls of string, men's traditional hats and meat, sheep's heads lined on a shelf with cuts of meat, something floating in a bowl of bloody water, a man with plaster of Paris applying it to broken bones, necklaces and bracelets, shoes and spices, and along the dirt path between the stores wandered donkeys, small carts and goats, plus the buyers and two older ladies from England. We smiled and the people smiled back. Young people shouted, Hello! We felt accepted. The next day we visited large gardens with several hundred fountains. They were, they were, large, were last turned on for Princess Diana, they told us. We will turn them on for you, special visitors, and he did. It was an impressive show of water shooting into the air, falling over walls, whirling and twirling. We took a ride from the one city to another on a Tonga, old-style pony and cart. 
It was basic and uncomfortable, but as we rode along, cars and lorries honked their horns, horns at us and waved vigorously. Another day we visited a special square in the city. There were lots of very young children there wanting to sell little flower buttonholes. One little boy was drawling over a child's book on a stall. His dulled eyes lit up when I bought it, brought it for him. There were some grand hotels in the area and we sneaked in to use their toilets. The only public ones we could find were without doors. A young lawyer we met took us on a tour of the famous school called Ashington, where they had ponies for the pupils to ride. He also treated us to a tasty meal in one of the grand hotels and helped speed, spend, speed up our visas to cross into India, India to visit Amritsar, the Golden Tam Temple. There, are jet there a gentleman guided us through the kitchens where they cooked for the poor. We waded through sloppy food spilled from huge cauldrons onto the floor and were invited to sit cross-legged and eat with the poor. We felt we couldn't face the food, unfortunately, and declined the offer. Back in Pakistan, we visited uh, Islamabad, wore little pink Pindi and Peshawar. That was a colourful place with markets, donkeys and carts, ladies in colourful saris. We wandered and soaked up the atmosphere. Next day, together with a guide, we picked up a soldier with a gun and travelled up to the Khyber Pass. We saw white-clad porters snaking through the mountains on foot transporting drugs. At times, a man would come from the mountain carrying a Klishnikov gun. The guide stopped and told us to take photographs because they liked that. The gun smiled. The man, gunman smiled for us. We reached the top of the pass and looked down over the craggy mountains of Afghanistan. As we left, a man sitting cross-legged with a small plastic dish containing a little food gestured to me to take some, but I declined. I regretted that I couldn't talk with him to explain why, but he smiled instead. The man was an example of the warmth and generosity shown to us throughout Pakistan. It was probably my most memorable journey of all. Other travels followed, some with Roland, others with my nursing friend, sometimes with both. Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos were other interest favourites. We continued to travel independently and met many interesting locals, all of them welcoming. Nearer to our home, sometimes countries breaking away from Russia were favourites. In Latvia, we saw men sitting on a frozen river, dangling their fishing lines through a hole in the thick ice, and in the evening attended operas and other musical events. More recently, my son took me to India and Nepal. We used local transport. Shimla was reached by the four-and-a-half-hour journey on the rocket steam train, which wound its way around mountains for 60 miles and through 102 tunnels, 20 stations and over 800 bridges. Amazing, Shimla was a no-smoking area. We commented on the clean streets and buildings and the cared-for surrounding to university students who told us they had to thank the British for everything. We visited what is known as the Golden Triangle, which is which includes Accra with the Taj Mahal before taking the nine-hour backpackers to Nepal. Finally, we wanted to give back, so we stayed in guest rooms at a children's home in Bahakpur and were able to help with their care uh, one day. It was excellent and we learned that it cost £100 to educate a child for a year. Recently, we celebrated our golden wedding. 
We asked guests to give it pound each uh, to this cause. The result was enough to educate two children for a year. Now as I approach my 80th birthday, I look back on my life with thankfulness and take time to enjoy our grandchildren. Little bridge walks in the a little a little bridge walks in the countryside. Give a few talks here and there, and tend the garden. I look forward to the next ten years.